Well, praise the Lord. As we enter our time of studying God's Word, let us uh, pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for uh, the truth that is found in your Word, truth that uh, is solid from day one, truth that never changes, truth that we need, truth that is the very lifeblood of the church, truth that is uh, the bread that we need every day. Lord, I pray that we are submitting to your word, not just here on campus or on a Sunday morning, but each and every day through the power of God who works within us through your spirit, Lord, that we are submitting very humbly to the word of the Lord. Thank you for the grace of the gospel, and I pray that as we continue to study the word this morning, we'll be reminded of the beauty of God's grace, the power of God's grace and the purpose of God's grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Specifically, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses in chapter 2. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 1075. 1075, that's where we'll be this morning. Uh, Last week when we left off in our study in Galatians, we were looking specifically at uh, Galatians chapter 1, uh, verses 16 through 24, and in there we really get an awesome picture of the personal personal testimony of God's work in the Apostle Paul. The very fact that the scripture tells us uh, in Galatians chapter 1, at the end there, it tells us that, that when Jesus Christ transforms us from the inside out, We have a renewed purpose. And that's what we saw in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul was on his way to Damascus uh, to persecute Christians, the very church that Jesus died for. And there, uh, Jesus reveals himself to Paul. And Paul, by grace through faith, received Christ as his Savior. And he's no longer uh, the persecutor of the church, but he is one of God's instruments in presenting the gospel uh, to all people. And so there's a renewed purpose that happens in life. And for you and I, that should bring great encouragement to us today. That all of us, if we're, if, we're, if we're in Christ today, all of us had a formal life, right? Every single one of us. And here, here's what I know about myself. And here's what I declare to be true of you as well, according to the scripture. That your formal life was far worse than you thought it was. Again, in Ephesians 2, we are told that we are dead in our sin, object of God's wrath, children of the enemy, right? But because of the grace of the gospel, grace that he lavished on us, we have been made new in Christ. And so that's a beautiful truth, that we have renewed purpose in Christ. And the other thing that we learned last week is that God is preparing us for that renewed purpose. That means everything that happened in our formal life, everything that happens today, and everything that may happen tomorrow, all of that is in preparation for God's renewed purpose in our life. That means that nothing is wasted, no circumstance wasted, no hurt wasted, no burden wasted. None of those things are wasted in Christ. Christ is using all those things, orchestrating every string in our life, ultimately for his glory but also for our good. And so we can rest with tremendous assurance that he will finish what he started. 
that though times life looks extremely bleak and past hurts and consequences still find themselves nagging at us today, that because of Christ's finished work on the cross, you and I one day will be fully complete in him. Everything will be as he designed it to be. And I say all that because the more and more I live as a follower of Christ, the more I am convinced that the absolute greatest blessing that you and I can have today is a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing than that. It also reminds me that because of that relationship that we have with God through Christ, there is nothing more free Nothing more liberating than knowing who we are in Christ and living out the life that Christ desires for us, in us, and through us, through the power of his spirit. I say that because we get to chapter 2, verse 1, and Paul begins to transition a little thought in those first 10 verses in chapter 1. And really, he starts to talk about the importance of the gospel of grace as it pertains to unity. Unity. Now think about unity for just a moment. Unity is the Father's desire for us. Unity is the very thing that Jesus died for. Unity is the very thing that the Holy Spirit secures. And unity is the very thing that the Apostle Paul and you and I today as followers of Christ should cherish and hold dear. And we'll find out why unity is so important. Now, it's a a unity that oftentimes we don't think about. But again, the Apostle Paul is using these first three chapters in the book of Galatians very strategically to build a foundation of doctrinal truth so that as we understand who we are in Christ, we'll begin to live out the very life that Christ desires for us. And one of those things centers around that of unity. So let's read those first ten verses and then we'll unpack them. Galatians 2, beginning in verse 1. The scripture says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because a false brother secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield to sum- in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. That's a lot in there, and we're going to unpack that. When I was in seminary, 
one of the sermon delivery classes I took, the, the professor said that every time you preach a message, you need to have at least one point, right? Well, I have six for you today, so we're going we're gonna to make sure we unpack those. But don't worry, don't worry. I'll make sure that you're at your next destination in time, so we'll get through them. I'll also say this. Uh, don't, don't, don't evaluate the time based on the first point, because the first point is definitely a lot longer. So when we get through the first one, don't think, man, we're going to be here all day. But that first one really sets the structure for where we're going to go the rest of our time together. And, and there are really uh, those six components talking about the unity of the gospel of grace and how this is so, so important in the life of the church. Extremely important. The first thing that uh, Paul begins to talk about is the unity and guarding the unity and guarding. Now remember the context. Uh, Paul and Barnabas had been commissioned by the church in Antioch and Syria uh, to go on that first missionary journey. Uh, that, they went through uh, the, the province of Galatia and there uh, the, the, the gospel was preached. They shared the gospel with everyone that they came into contact with. And not only was the gospel shared, but people received the good news of the gospel by grace through faith. Lives were transformed, churches were planted, but as soon as they left those particular churches that were planted, they had, there was a group of false teachers that would come in to try to distort the gospel. We, we know them as uh, the Judaizers. Judaizers were coming in to communicate a false gospel that said, Jesus plus works. Again, that's important because it's not an outright denial of Jesus, the work of Jesus, but it's Jesus wasn't sufficient. And so you have to add something else to make salvation complete. And that is why the unity of the gospel is so important. That's why we are to guard it just as Paul is explaining how to guard it. And there's a buildup that happens in here. Beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, Then after 14 years, I, speaking of Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, there's two things in this first verse that there is scholarly uh, discussion about. Very, uh, we'll call it debate, if you will. And the, the first one is, what is the 14 years referring to? How do we define that 14 years? Is the 14 years referring to the closing of uh, chapter 1 and, and getting into chapter 2? That's one option. Is the 14 years uh, talking about the last time that, that Paul was in Jerusalem? Or is the 14 years referring to uh, his point of con uh, conversion when he came to faith in Jesus Christ? So there's, where, there's, where there's some scholarly discussion on that. Uh, I lean towards the third option that the 14 years is referring to when uh, the Apostle Paul came to faith in Christ because he uses the, the same way of telling time in chapter 1, uh, talking about uh, when after so many years uh, after his salvation, this was the next thing that happened. And so for me, I look at the 14 years uh, from a standpoint of Acts chapter 9, where Paul was converted uh, to Christianity by the grace of God. The second thing that scholars uh, discuss or debate on is uh, when it talks about, again, uh, he went to Jerusalem. The, the question is, what, is he, what time is that? We know in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul at least went to Jerusalem five different times. Uh, that's what the scripture tells us. It's possible that he went more, but we know for sure in the book of Acts there were five specific times that he went. Uh, most scholars uh, would say that uh, this uh, meeting again in Jerusalem uh, was more than likely either the second time he went or the third time he went. Now, uh, there's some significance to that. 
the third time that the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem, it would have been during uh, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council was so pivotal in the early church. It's where they established uh, for the very first time, as clearly as you possibly can, that it's not Jesus plus works. It's Jesus and nothing else. And so that's the third time that the Apostle Paul uh, goes to Jerusalem. I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. Uh, because the, council, the Jerusalem Council was a very public meeting, and what we'll find in this passage is that there was a private meeting that happened. I think this is the private meeting that happened before the public meeting, and so that leans me towards that's the second time Paul went to Jerusalem. That's where we find in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, there was a severe famine uh, in the church in Jerusalem, and so there was uh, relief efforts that were given to collect uh, resources to help support uh, the church in Jerusalem. And so that's where I lean towards. Uh, now, we think about Jerusalem for just a minute. Jerusalem is very, very important because it really is the birthplace of Christianity. It's where uh, the, the early church was established uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so that's very, very significant. But here's what we do know. We know that Bar uh, Barnabas and Titus were with Paul. Now, this is significant because let's think about these two individuals. Uh, Barnabas was a Jewish Levite, right? Uh, so let's think about it in our modern-day context. The, Barnabas grew up in church, right? He was around God's Word. He heard God's Word. He, he read God's Word. He memorized God's Word. Uh, so he was, he was easy to get along with, if you will. He's the one that knew the system. He knew uh, what it was like to come on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. He knew what prayer was like. He knew the importance of tithe and bringing an offering. He knew what service looked like. He knew all these different things. But what's interesting about uh, Barnabas is that his original name wasn't Barnabas, it was actually Joseph. In Acts chapter 4, we see that. Uh, and after his conversion, after he came to faith in Christ, uh, they gave him a new name. I'm so thankful that in Christ I have a new name, right? And Barnabas means son of encouragement, and that's exactly who he was. He was in a tremendous encouragement. So think about uh, if you had a yearbook. If Barnabas had a yearbook, he would be the most likable, right? The most huggable, the one that people wanted to be around. He's the one that people gravitated to. It was in Acts 4 that uh, Barnabas uh, was led by the Spirit to sell a, a piece of land, and he took the proceeds of that land, and he gave it to the church uh, to help support the ministry needs there. It was in Acts chapter 9 that uh, after Paul was uh, converted, when he came from death to life, when he uh, had uh, his encounter with Jesus, it was Barnabas who, who went alongside Paul and brought him to the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. Remember, they were scared to death of Paul. He was the persecutor of the church. He wanted to kill Christians, and, and it was Barnabas who went with Paul and said, hey, this is our brother in Christ. And so this is a good, this is a very godly man. We know that in Acts 11, listen to the testimony that is given in Acts 11. Again, the, the gospel is being preached. It's going out to Antioch specifically, Gentile regions of the world. In Acts 11, this is what we find out about Barnabas. The, the church in Jerusalem wanted to check out what was happening in Antioch. And this is what the scripture says in Acts 11, verse 22. Uh, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So they get wind that the gospel is spreading to Antioch in Syria, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, what does it say? He was glad. Can you believe a Christian can be glad that people who are not like you are getting saved? Oh, Barnabas was glad 
And it says that he exhorted. That means he encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, for full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas, listen, so Barnabas went to Tarshish to look for who? For Saul. Remember what God's calling on Saul's life was? That renewed purpose. You will be my messenger to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas sees all that God is doing in this Gentile region of Antioch. And who does he think about? Man, I, I got I to get Saul. I got to get Saul on this. Saul is the one for this particular mission. As a side note, it's there in Antioch that Christians were first called Christians. Little Christ followers, right? So that's important. Uh, and then we have Titus. Titus, in many ways, is direct opposite of Barnabas. Titus was a Gentile. He was Greek. That means he was raised in a different culture. It was a different world living in the Greek culture. In our day, he would, we would say that Titus didn't grow up in church. At most, he may have heard a little bit of the good news of the gospel, didn't understand what it meant. He looked different. He acted different. He talked different. Everything about Titus compared to Barnabas was drastically different. And yet Titus came to faith in Jesus Christ. By God's grace, he received Christ as his Savior. And what we know is that the Apostle Paul, who was also a Jew, mentored Titus. He took him under his wing and, and discipled him in such a way that, that Titus began to grow as a mature follower of Christ. He was a man of integrity, a man who had uh, tremendous people skills. He knew how to relate uh, with people. And it was the Apostle Paul who, who gave Titus this great commission, this, this under, because Titus eventually was gonna, is the pastor in Crete. And so Paul comes alongside him and he, he gives him this commission. And it's found in Titus 2, verses 7 and 8. The scripture says, that, and so this is Paul speaking specifically to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity Dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And this is what we find. Because of the power of God's grace in Titus' life, he fulfilled that calling. Not, not perfectly, but God-honoring. And so the question is, why did Paul bring these two specific men to Jerusalem? Why Barnabas, the Jewish Levite, and why Titus, the Gentile Greek. Why? Well, the scripture tells us in verses 2 and 3. He says, I went up because of a revelation. So Paul says, I wasn't summoned by anybody. This is, he was summoned to go to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. But here he says, I wasn't summoned by man. I was, I was prompted by who? I was prompted by the Lord. And he set before him, before them, that them would be the, the, Jew, the leaders in the Jerusalem church. That would be Peter, James, and John. So that's the them. And then he says, though privately before those who seemed influential. So they have a private meeting. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul was prompted by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He has a private meeting with Peter, James, and John. Uh, again, these are the primary leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And what he's doing is he wants to... Share with him, them the power of the gospel to the, the Gentile people. Right? This is very, very important. Paul says, listen, Gentiles who have Greek culture, 
are coming to faith in Christ. They're being saved by the gospel of grace, not by works. They're not adhering to the law of Moses. They're not being circumcised, but they are being saved by what? The grace that is found in the gospel. And if you want proof of this, here's my brother in Christ, Titus. This is the proof of God's redeeming grace. Now remember how Paul defined the gospel in Galatians 1. Verse 3, he says, grace to you and peace from God. That, in a nutshell, is the gospel itself. And how does it come about? It comes from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This work of the gospel, this grace that is found in the gospel, comes from God, not from man. It is the finished work of Christ, and it's the finished work of Christ by grace through faith that we go from death to life. Again, we have what? A renewed purpose. We're prepared for that renewed purpose, and it is all for the glory of God. And Paul meets with these key leaders in the church in Jerusalem to make sure that they are in agreement with the gospel of grace. When he says, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, he's not asking clarification to make sure that his gospel is matching up with their gospel. That's not what he's talking about here. Why? How do we know that? Because the same revelation that Peter, James, and John got of the gospel is the same revelation that the apostle Paul received of the gospel. They received it directly from who? Jesus Christ. So the issue isn't, is the gospel message the same? The issue is, are we guarding the gospel message? Are we presenting the gospel in such a way that it is in, um, in accord with the way that Jesus has taught us? And the, the reason why he says, I want to make sure that I'm not running or had not run in vain is, if, if we are presenting a gospel message that is, and it's different than what Jesus declared over us, can you imagine the opportunity for disunity within the church? Can you imagine the uphill battle that people are going to have in understanding the beauty of God's grace and the gospel? That's what he was focused on. And why was this potential for disunity coming in the church? He tells us in verse 4, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. So think about the language here. We have language of secret and slipped in and spied out and, and havoc. It's almost like we just got implanted in a Jason Bourne movie, right? That's what I feel like. All these things are happening. And why? Because these, these false brothers, meaning they're not true followers of Christ. They're going into the church. They're creating havoc, right? This is important for us today. 2022, today, right now, we need to understand that every generation, in every generation, there is always a group of individuals that can't stand the gospel of God's grace. They come into the church. They become church members. They serve in ministries. They teach Bible studies. They give tithes. They sit in church services all the time, but they inch their way in to cause great havoc in the church. Listen, we're not immune to that. Paul describes these false believers, these Judaizers. He, listen to how he describes them in Philippians. He says in Philippians 3.2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In other words, look out for those who are only focused on what? External conformity to what they want, not gospel transformation. They're like predatory wolves is what he's saying. They are set out to rob us of the freedom that we have in Christ. 
Their goal is to tie upon burden, upon burden of man's law, man's expectation, man's tradition on you, just as he did with Titus. Why? Because they want to rob us of the very liberating power that we have in Christ. But here's what we need to understand. Our great enemy isn't these individuals that come in, infiltrate the church like spies, trying to rob us of the freedom we have. That, they're only agents of a greater enemy. The greatest enemy is Satan himself. And what did Jesus say about this one? In John 10.10, 10, he says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Just like Satan has a step-by-step process of robbing us of the liberating power of God's grace in our life, steal, kill, destroy, the false brothers have a similar step-by-step plan. They secretly sneak in, spy out our freedom, trying to do what? Trying to enslave us to the very things that Christ has set us free from. Man's laws, man's traditions, man's expectations, the weight of all that. And what is their response? How did they address the attack? And, And understand, this is a unified addressing of the attack. Paul Peter, James, and John united together, and how do they respond? Verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. They guarded the gospel of grace with great unity. Where the agenda of man began to peak its ugly head, they pushed back with the gospel of grace. Let that be a reminder to us that we too will be a people of God who will push back the attempts of any, any moment, any glimmer of opportunity to rob us of the grace that we have in the gospel, that we would push it back with great unity in the faith. Don't entertain it. Don't give it an inch. Don't give it a thought. Don't give it a moment. Don't let it rob you of the grace that we have in Christ. There is great freedom in Christ. So there's unity in the guarding Secondly, there's unity in the message. As lovingly as I can, I am 100% convinced and committed to the gospel of God's grace. There is no greater message than the gospel of God's grace, so there must be unity in the message. And we see this in verse 6. Verse 6, the scripture says, And from those who seem to be influential, again, Peter, James, and John, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the surface, it sounds like, Paul is disrespecting the leaders in the Jerusalem church. He's disrespecting Peter, James, and John. But that's, that is not what's happening here. Paul has a deep respect for them. That's why he's meeting with them where? In private, to discuss this particular matter. What is he reminding us of? He's reminding us of the power of the gospel. The very power of the gospel is not found in the title that you have or don't have. The power of the gospel is in the gospel itself. The power of the gospel rests fully on the message of God's grace. Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. They had unity in the divine message of the gospel of grace. So it didn't matter didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Gentile coming to faith in Christ. It didn't matter who you were sharing the message with. It didn't matter the circumstances in which you were sharing it in. If it be at work, at home, at school, in the store, in the doctor's office, when somebody's diagnosed with cancer, or even when they are burying their loved one at a graveside, 
ceremony. The gospel of God's grace is our only hope. It's our only hope for this life and the life to come. Jesus is our living hope. He is the joy of our salvation. Nothing needs to be added to it. The message of the gospel of God's grace is life-changing, not because of the person sharing it, but because of the person we are sharing. We are sharing the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so they had unity in the message. But not only that, they had unity in the mission. Unity in the mission. Look at the beauty and power of verse 7. The scripture says, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So like Paul, we too are entrusted with what? The gospel. The word entrusted means that we are to be good stewards of God's glorious grace in our life. The very grace that Jesus bled for. The blood that was shed, not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but simply because he lavished his love on us. We have been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation, reconciling people to God. We are conduits of God's very grace in the world. And it doesn't matter who you're called to minister to or how many you're called to minister in front of. We all are called to the same mission. And our desire, our gospel desire is to remove any and every man-made tradition, expectation, or obstacle that prohibits them from seeing the glory of his wondrous grace. That's what they were committed to. This means that my ultimate agenda in this world and in my life isn't to conform people to who I want them to be. My ultimate agenda in this world and in my life is to point them to the liberating freedom they can find and have in Jesus Christ. That is my ultimate goal. Does it make it easy when people are like me? Sometimes. But that's not my starting point. My starting point is what? See Jesus. That is our mission field. Let us be on mission for him. Paul says it like this in Galatians 6. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but what? What counts? A new creation. And that, that's what matters in life. What matters most is not external conformity, but inward transformation. At the end of the day, the only thing that ultimately matters is that people are who? They're new in Christ. And it's out of their new life in Christ that they will begin to reflect the life of Christ in them and through them. So we have one message. We have multiple mission fields for one very purpose. What is that? Pointing all people, no matter what to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So our mission field does look different, but we're all committed to the same mission, to present Christ and him crucified. The, sec, uh, the fourth thing that we see is unity and empowerment. Unity and empowerment. All of us as followers of Christ receive the same empowerment to share the gospel to whatever that mission field is. We see this in verse 8. Paul says, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine, to the Gentiles. Now think about this for just a minute. Peter's primary mission field was to the Jews, not exclusively, but primarily to the Jews. Paul's primary mission field, not exclusively, but primarily was to the Gentiles. So they had totally different mission fields, right? But guess what they had in common? They had the same message, the same mission, and the same empowerment. Did you notice where that power comes from? He says, for he who worked. Who is the he? It is God himself. He's the one that's giving us power. By God's grace, it is the Lord who is working in both Peter and Paul. And the same Lord that is working in and through them is powerfully at work where? 
in us as well. This is the great ministry of the church. This is what we spent so much time on last year, looking at Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may what? That we may present everyone complete in Christ. For this we toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. The power comes from where? The power comes from God himself. The ministry of the church is dependent on the grace of God, powerfully working in us and through us. So consider your mission field today. Consider what that looks like. Consider the people that you have influence of. Consider where God has planted you by his grace. Are you relying on the power of God's grace to live, share, and show the gospel to them? Listen, think about where you work, where you live. Opportunity after opportunity. God has strategically planted you there for his purpose. I want to encourage you, every day, rely on God's power to live, share, and show the gospel of grace to others. Paul says it like this. Paul says that we are to leave the results up to who? To God, not to us. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but, but God gave what? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only who? But only God who gives the growth. Listen, live in that gospel freedom today. God has called you to be an instrument of his grace, right? You can't make choices for people. And so don't get burdened down and enslaved to a lack of results according to your perspective. Live in the very freedom that you are simply doing what God has called you and equipped you for. The results are up to him. And the other, at the end of the day, we, we don't know when there will be fruit in their life or if there will be fruit in their life, but we're trusting the one who can make us fruitful. So there's unity in the empowerment, but there's also unity in partnership. Partnership. Uh, Paul, Peter, James, and John, they're, they're, they're all working together, right? They're on the same team. How about that? Verse 9. And when James and uh, Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul refers to this as the, the right hand of fellowship. This is the only time that that phrase is used anywhere in the Bible. The right hand of fellowship. And it's not talking about getting the best seats at the next potluck dinner, right? That's not what he's talking about here. What is he talking about? He's talking about the joint partnership and ministry that God has called them to. This means that they were not in competition with one another. Oh, that the church in America would hear that today. We're not competing with the church down the street. No, we are contending for the gospel so that souls will be saved and disciples will grow healthy. This is not about a production or a performance. This is about the eternal salvation of people who need Jesus. And we are called simply to be faithful to the group of people, to the harvest that he has called us to. We have lost a lot of ground in the American church because of this idea of competition. But it's not just in the American church. It's in the heart of man. Oh, that we would be a Christ-centered church. Oh, that we would understand the deep fellowship that we have with every brother and sister in Christ. That every Christ-centered church in the body of Christ, doesn't matter where they're located, we are on the same team. We are on a joint mission together. First Corinthians 3, Paul says, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We're simply laying on the foundation that Jesus Christ established for us. And we are doing that together. Though the mission field looks different, the message is the same. That leads us to our last one. Not only is there unity and partnership, but there's unity and eagerness. Unity and eagerness. Not only did the early church leaders agree on the importance of doctrine, right? What they believe, the gospel itself, but they also agreed on how to live out the gospel. Verse 10, it says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It almost seems like that's out of place, but it's not. Because the ultimate agenda in the life of a follower of Christ is not just to have a high level of doctrine. That is important. But it's how does that doctrine apply itself to life? And that's what they were, they were focused on. The eagerness to live out what Christ has done in them. And again, I go back to the reason why Paul would have went to Jerusalem the second time. There was famine in the land. There was uh, hard times for the church in Jerusalem. They had very little means. But who had means? The Gentile Christians. And it was the Gentile Christians who were going to support the needs of the church in Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 11, 29 and 30. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I love the word eager. Eager. They wanted to do it. It's not, man, it's not the attitude, I, I have to do this today. No, no, no. It's the attitude, I get, I get to do this. And every time we have breath, we get to, we get to be an instrument of God's grace to people who need to know that Jesus Christ loves them. Both primarily in the church that we see in Galatians 6, we'll see that in, in, uh, later on, but also to our community itself, that we, we get to do this. What a great blessing. So you have Jewish Christians who had a need, and who was meeting that need? Gentile Christians. And Paul not only was being a part of this himself, but he was er- encouraging other Gentile churches to do this as well. Second Corinthians tells us about uh, one such effort. It was the church in Corinth that said, yes, we'll support the church in Jerusalem. And time went by, and they didn't do it. Paul holds them accountable to it. Listen to what he says in chapter 8. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So he's using Macedonia as a reminder that, hey, the church in Jerusalem has a need. You promised to meet that need. Don't lose sight of that. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in wealth of generosity on their part. So the church in Macedonia is experiencing something probably very similar to the church in Jerusalem. This isn't easy times for them. But what does it say? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. So here you have a group of believers who are experiencing hard times for themselves. But God invoked in them a heart of generosity. And what did they do? They gave generously. First, as a worship to God. Secondly, as a benefit of others. What causes us 
to live generously in this life. It's the gospel of grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you may, be, you may by his poverty might become rich. That is the gospel. The king of glory, of infinite wealth, laid all that aside, took on humanity, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead for you, so that you could know the very riches of Christ and glory in him forever and ever. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't have enough money. Listen, God is not interested in the amount of the gift. He's interested in the heart of the giver. That's what he's interested in. And, and I would encourage you, don't just margin uh, a budget. Margin your time and your talent, right? God has gifted you, graciously gifted you. Are you, margin, are you creating margin in your time and in your talent to use it for the benefit of others? This is, this is the gospel implication here, that there's a unity of eagerness to help in any way we can the body of Christ. And here's what we find. As we give way to that, we'll find that it is not a burden. It is a blessing to help meet the needs within the body of Christ. Think about the gospel of grace and the unity that it provides for us as followers of Christ. There's unity in the guarding. There's unity in the message. Unity in the mission. Unity in empowerment. Unity in partnership. And unity in eagerness. Let me ask you, where do you struggle most today? Where are, where are you seeing God work the most today in your life? Are you convinced that you are just as pivotal in your school or where you work as I am on Sunday morning when it comes to declaring the message of the gospel? It's not about the title. It's about the one that you're sharing. So I encourage you, share Christ. Let us as a church guard the message of the gospel. We'll find next week that the enemy is not just on the, the inside of false believers, but sometimes we ourselves, born-again believers, can be the enemy of the gospel of grace. And how do we do that? We're going to find out next week how we address it. But here's what I want to encourage you with. The gospel of grace sets us free. It's the gospel of grace that brings unity within the church. I encourage us to guard it to realize we're all called to the same mission, though it may look different. We have the same message in Christ. We are empowered by the same spirit of God. I pray that there's eagerness within the body of Christ to live and reflect Jesus Christ. Let us stand and sing together.